Have you ever wondered why some business people are more successful than others? Welcome to The Mentor List, a source of sound advice with your host, David Lewis. The Mentor List specializes in interviews with top business minds. Listen to their stories, list their habits, and most importantly, gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List. Hello and welcome to the show. Today we are sitting down and having a chat with Cameron Schwab. Now Cameron is an experienced CEO, leadership coach and organizational specialist. He works with boards, CEOs and exec teams as well as coaches and coaching teams to build leadership capability, particularly as it relates to organizational performance and transformation. He has been a leader in the dynamic, heavily scrutinized and multifaceted professional sports industry for over 30 years in the major Australian sporting competition, the Australian Football League. His leadership career commenced at just 20 years of age, overseeing talent, identification and player recruitment at the Melbourne Football Club. He was appointed CEO to the Richmond Football Club at just age 24, making him the youngest in the history of the AFL. For the last 25 years, he was CEO of three clubs, the Richmond, Melbourne and Fremantle clubs, ranking him in the 8th longest serving CEO in the 150 years of the game. He was also CEO of the AFL's official website, afl.com.au. He holds an MBA and Masters of Marketing from the Melbourne Business School. He's also completed the Advanced Management Program, as well as the Harvard Program of Board Effectiveness at Harvard Business School. He is a Vincent Fairfax Fellow of the Centre of Ethical Leadership at the University of Melbourne. So I caught up with Cameron here in Melbourne at Work Club and certainly love making this recording. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation. So Cameron, welcome to The Mentor List. That's a great honour. I've been a listener and pleased to have the opportunity of joining you. No, it's great to actually have a listener on. It's less prep work for me and you sort of know the flow of the show. And yeah, so so just do you want to just maybe start off and just tell the listeners where we are? Yeah, we're at Work Club and Work Club does have the reminiscence of Fight Club and we don't talk about Work Club. It's a place which is, I think it was, they've been in Sydney for a few years but recently come to Melbourne and I've got to say it's probably had as big an impact on my more recent working life than than any other place. It's got the goal of bringing people of of not just ambition together but people of difference together and and I've found there's probably hasn't been a day, I come in here every day, where where I haven't enjoyed a conversation or haven't reached from a notebook at some point to to write something down from someone who's you know I've run into is, who's also a member here and highly recommended it. it's early days for it the attitude of the people here is outstanding very friendly very decent but it's also very productive as well and you know, so I'd highly, highly recommend it we're on the corner of Collins and Elizabeth and in the old bank building and it's beautifully as you can see from your own observations it's beautifully fitted out and I think it does what collaborative workplaces were supposed to do but just adds a whole more whole bigger dimension to it yeah and if you can hear that thunder outside it's the trams or the 109 it <laughs> is, yeah. so it's very accessible very yeah. accessible all right Cam so yeah well welcome to the show and I might start off with just maybe if you can tell the listeners a bit about yourself and yeah. Your story. I spent probably the best part of 30 years working in the AFL, of which 25 of them or 24 of them were as a, a CEO of, of three AFL clubs. In chronological order, Richmond, Melbourne and Fremantle. I actually had a second stint at Melbourne as well. So I was CEO of Melbourne twice, actually sacked by Melbourne twice as CEO. So that might be uh, <laughs> something a little bit we'll unique. But, you know, I, had, I was a CEO young. I was 24 when I, when I first was given the role as CEO at Richmond Footy Club in 1988. So what year were you born? 81. 81. Okay, so you were just a, a lad when I was CEOing. And that was a, a great experience, really tough time, very enjoyable. It was going to the club. I grew up as a Richmond supporter. My father, Alan Schwab, was also a football person and he was the, the secretary, as they were then called, of the Richmond Footy Club when I was growing up. And he was during a great success era for, for Richmond. They were the team of that generation. Unfortunately, the club wasn't in nearly as good a shape you know, some, some 20 years later. I think it was actually less than 20 years that I was – yeah, so Dad finished up in 1976 as general manager of Richmond and I was appointed in 1988. So it was only you know, just over 10 years after he finished up in the role that I found myself in the same, same role. 
Because that's quite that's a quick rise to the top. You could say. Yeah, it was. Yeah, and look, it was. And, and people have often asked me, was it was it too early? And clearly, it was. There was probably no amount of experience was going to prepare me for for the challenge of the job. But I, I was never made to feel that way, and that was that was a great credit to the people, particularly the the president of the club, a fellow by the name of Neville Crow, who, who sadly passed away last year. He was a he was a great mentor of mine and, and very influential person in my life. And I think even the day that it was announced. He said in the paper that you know Cameron's twenty four going on forty four, and I was thinking to myself, I'm twenty four going on about nineteen in my own mind. <laughs> it was a it was an interesting thing, but just the fact that he made me feel that way was a really you know probably a form of leadership that I didn't understand at that time nor had respect for in regard to how how you are with people and how you relate to people, particularly as it, as it relates to their potential discomforts and obviously it was a it was a discomfort for me that I was so young in that role and I was also young looking too I, I wasn't someone who you know I always joke with people I don't think I reached puberty till I was 18 or 19 I was and so I, I was clearly young and it was dealing with people who were my childhood heroes as well I think I still had duffel coats with the players numbers on my wow. you know, at home so and, the, and we were coming off the end of an era and going into what was really tough era and the club was actually technically bankrupt during that time so it was a it was challenging at a whole lot of levels. So do you think it's a disadvantage in your own mind being so young? Again, I was never made to feel that way, so that was probably important. I wouldn't change the experience for for anything, but at the same time I wouldn't necessarily recommend it as well. And I think when you take on any new role, you don't know what you don't know, and that's a cliche, but at that point I was probably feeling quite confident because I'd been a part of of Melbourne Football Club in the previous generation where I had the great opportunity of working with some outstanding people like Ron Barassi, you know, John Northey who had recently come over as coach. And we'd gone from being a club that hadn't made the finals for for 23 or 24 years and we made the finals and we actually got to a grand final in 1988, got beaten badly. And I was the recruiting manager during that period of time. So I was able to bring in enough talent during the first years of drafting and the game was changing a lot during that period. And so I had a fair degree of confidence in my ability to be quite contemporary in my thinking and be modern in my approach to strategically building a football team, things we probably take for granted now, but at the time were quite new. I was one of the first to get into use of video for selecting players and that was actually born out of the fact that Melbourne didn't have a lot of money, so I couldn't get on a plane and go and watch games. So I started bringing videos from wherever I could get them from. And we recruited a few players who were a little bit left field, but they went on and had great careers at the club. And so I had at least the confidence of having done something within the game of which I'd seen the outcomes from, and that was a great feeling. But then going into a role where you had to take responsibility for the whole of the organisation you know, and that was in so many ways a step too far, but at the same time I was I was very determined to make the most of that opportunity. Yeah, got it. And when I think about, you know, some of the roles that you've been in, you're sort of wearing two hats around so it needs to be a sustainable business and yeah. so a commercial entity, but then winning on Sunday at all costs. So how do you yeah. balance those? No, it's a great question. And it, and it's probably the most misunderstood question within it all. And You've probably got – there's three layers of constraints that sporting clubs have and I think any business always has to have a sense of its own constraints, not only because of you know the, the obvious notion of, okay, well, that's where our market sits or that's, that's where our opportunity sits, but it actually forces you to be far more innovative within that constraint. And, and I'll, I'll talk about constraints a little bit later because I think there's some really good learnings within that. And so with a footy club, your constraints are based on obviously your location where you are. And if you're in Melbourne, you're one of 10 clubs. If you're in Perth, you're one of two clubs with a, a market to yourself. Your stadium arrangements, and everyone says, well, you know, your, your Melbourne Footy Club or Richmond Football Club, you play at the MCG, great stadium. There shouldn't be constraints, but it's an unbelievably expensive stadium to play at, you know, because it's built for something other than, you know, 25,000 people turning up when you're going no good. And the other one is the constraints which are put on you by the AFL is in they have player rules, so that restricts the movement of players, but they also they also distribute a large proportion of your funds as well. And so those three layers of constraints affect both your profit model, as in your ability to build a sustainable business, 
but also affect what we call our premiership model, which is then your capacity to build a, a football team. Because your your profit model obviously funds your football team. Your football team yeah. goes well, and then the money hopefully you generate, dependent on those constraints, helps you build your business. So there's a, it is a very circular area, and and it is or it's circular consideration. And and don't worry, you can have some really interesting debates as to whether you put on another corporate salesperson or whether you recruit another halfback flanker you know it is a, it is that it literally can because the clubs I've gone into in all cases were actually at the bottom of the ladder and broke and so so you had to actually and to give yourself any chance of success you had to slowly build your profit model but at the same time you know get your side as competitive as you can as quickly as you can so you can then create some hope and expectation particularly on behalf of the supporters who might have been doing it pretty hard up until that point yeah. and so it is a, it, it gets quite circular but you always the good thing is the CEO you should be the best person to be able to read that play and also you should be the person who has the capacity to manage the expectations of what a fundamentally yeah, you know, the one thing about AFL clubs is they don't lack for ambition and they don't lack for A-type personalities. So you're having to build the types of relationships with those people and those personalities to manage expectations and and hopefully you can get everyone pointing in vaguely the same direction. Yep. Because, yeah, you know, I imagine there's many different powerful players within a club or a, big, a football club. Yeah, no, it, it attracts, you know, really strong personalities. And we always say that the, the interesting thing, even around board tables and because it's such a constrained environment, you've, you've got another, you know, you've got a set of rules which not many people have to deal with, which the AFL impart on you because they need to do that to create a balanced competition and that's for the good of the game and, and that's been a significant improvement in the sport over the last, the last generation. But at the same time, you know, you, you'll be saying to people, you, you can be in a room full of people that, where every single one of them is used to getting their own way. And to take people from, and even the athletes themselves, the players come in as the best players in their teams. You know, they come right. in as the, the local heroes. And so you, they've come in on the basis of a very selfish, almost indulgent upbringing, you know, where it's about them getting to that opportunity. And then the first value you've got to educate them on is selflessness, you know, and that can be a big challenge. But I think that applies for people sitting around board tables at football clubs and people sitting within administrations and coaching staff, all of them. You know, you, you if you're not prepared to commit to an absolute team ethos, well, you won't win because there are clubs who are committing to that ethos and they'll just do it better than what you'll do it. Got it. And, and you sort of mentioned before the circular motion or – and if you're coming into a club that doesn't have that momentum and the, well, one thing's not feeding the other, it sounds like you've done that a few times. Was there a was there a one-size-fits-all or a cookie-cutter approach that you had that... No, again, a good question. Look, I think probably because my thinking evolved and also the challenges evolved, but yeah, there are times I can look back on my career and say, I did my best work and we didn't achieve what we want to do and other times where you're unjustly enriched, you know, where circumstances worked in your favour. But I think the, the first thing you try to do as any as a leader is give a sense of hope, I think. And, and football clubs more than any other businesses, I think, require that because because the performance of the team has so much, particularly for the supporters, just has so much impact on people's, put it this way, you can't demand a passion for your club and a love of your club and then be disappointed when it doesn't live up to the expectations of that love and passion. It's like any a breakup of any type of relationship, that's why it hurts you most because you love it most. And and football clubs are very much call on a strong emotional commitment from you know, many thousands of people. So what the first thing you've got to do is try and give a sense of hope, but the hope has to be real. Uh, the energy generally comes within any organisation from what you're achieving now or what you genuinely believe you can achieve in the future. And so, and some people would say that's a vision, that's a, and, and perhaps it is, but I, I see it more as just you need hope. And if you can't lay that pathway to hope when you're not going to win now, and it's unlikely that you're going to have many wins in the next few years, particularly for the people who are closest to that process, well, you probably fail as a, as a CEO in that situation. Going into an organisation tomorrow, I would still take that approach with me. And so you'd have to find the things that that would actually create that expectation. And can I give you an example of one of those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that'd be great. I was appointed CEO of Fremantle Football Club in 2001, and I think I was mainly appointed because no one else wanted it. And and it was the club was eight million in debt. 
It was last on the ladder, won two games, had lost 17 games in a row, and the coach had been sacked during the year, and Sean McManus was the captain. He'd stepped aside as, as captain, and went about three weeks after I arrived, and I was there on my own. My family hadn't come over yet. The president of the club actually resigned from his role, and three or four board members also resigned. And they were the very people who'd actually appointed me into the into wow. the job. And so we're getting a whole new board, basically, and a new president. And so the board was being criticised for a whole range of decisions that it had taken in the in the previous time, as as is the want of the local or any any sporting media. And I was actually part of that criticism, and I'd been in the job for three weeks. So I was wow. actually they were criticised criticising my appointment. And I remember ringing my wife saying, "This just might be." This just might be too hard. This is just might be the right thing for us, you know. And, and you know, I know you've asked for a quote, so I'm going to roll it out early. Okay. And Alan Jeans, the famous Hawthorne coach who I worked with from one year at Richmond, used to say, "Your first loss is your best loss," you know. As in, if it's not going to work, you know, face up to your situation, deal with your situation, and and give yourself the opportunity of moving on. And that quote was sort of ringing in my ears as I'm as I'm weighing up where I'm at, as I'm staying at the Esplanade Hotel in Fremantle with no friends, no board, no captain, no coach, no anyone reading the newspaper that I'm no good. So. So I actually had with me a report which was conducted when Fremantle first came into the competition. The club had never finished higher than 12th on the ladder until that point. And the original report and all the thinking behind it, I'd worked out all of those conditions still actually existed. You know, they were still there. They weren't wrong. The club hadn't been successful, but it wasn't for the reasons that the thing couldn't be successful. And so immediately the thought came to mind was that, the city of Fremantle, which had this famous sporting tradition and a great football tradition, which was probably mainly known within WA at that stage, just hadn't expressed itself through its new incarnation, you know, being the Fremantle Dockers. And so I started to focus immediately on the very things that made Fremantle football great. And part of that was embracing you know, the people who'd made Fremantle football great, it was embracing, there was a certain ethos that Fremantle people expected. And and I think I understood that, even though I was from Victoria. And I think it went back to my recruiting days where I'd go over and watch the local, you know, East Fremantle, South Fremantle games. And they were always fantastic games, the derbies. And I just kept reflecting on those things. I thought, no, well, that, that'll be the card I'll play early, that we will be the team for Fremantle. And part of that was actually also made a commitment that we would give and reward those people as quickly as we could. And and with the support of the coach, we said that we're going to win games at home. We had our best chance of winning games at home, even if it meant playing lesser teams when we played away, but just always make our home games memorable for the people there. And in the first year we were there, so 2002, we won nine games at home, didn't win any away. But if you're watching... Fremantle and you're going to watch the games in your local environment and you get the experience of seeing your team win and going home and having a drink with your mates and you know and talking about it during the course of the week it was nine of the 12 games that we had at Subiaco Oval and then the hope that's when the hope kicked in and we also had you know it was Matthew Pavlich was emerging Jeff Farmer we'd recruited he was another player recruited basically to bring hope to the organization because he was such an exciting player and Luke McFarlane, also Trent Crowe, who didn't work out, but there was all of a sudden there was some hope. So being able to talk about it and then back it up as quickly as you possibly can was really important. And a momentum developed from there. And it ended up being, I think, the best seven years of my working life. You know, wow. from from a period where literally I was telling the family just to hold off before we shift. You know, yeah. that's how quickly it came. So just going back to I guess that decision, and you're obviously questioning it. How did you get yourself in that position? Because you've sort of, you mentioned that, you know, you started at a CEO role and is that just the natural progression or is that you're thinking that, okay, I'll go and be the CEO in the worst performing club and can't <laughs> yeah. get much harder? I was mentioning to you before about how I did this gifts analysis and one of the gifts I had was the gift of mercy. <laughs> and so my wife often has said to me, why are you always saving things? You know, and it wasn't, I was totally unaware of it, but I think there is a great attraction of going into an environment where it might be seen externally as being in crisis, but you're seen as part of the the new wave and you get to lead that new wave. The one thing is if you're in crisis, people are, are up for the conversation about change. So you, you at least have that. But you do have to make progress quickly. You can't bounce back into crisis. And probably when I f- reflect back on my, my last time as a CEO is we reverted back to crisis too often and for a whole variety of reasons. But you know, we went, whereas at Fremantle, we were able to 
get some momentum and maintain. You know, there was a couple of years where we perhaps could have played a bit better, but we, what it actually did though was it, it created another scenario for us is that the expectation of the team actually was jumped well ahead of capability. And the danger in doing that is you start without knowing it, over-promising, and it's it's no different to me saying this will be the best movie you've ever seen or you get this is going to be the best book you've ever read and you're 25 pages in thinking, well, why has he recommended this? You know, that's that same sense of it. And we probably had a couple of years where we didn't perform to – we performed to our own expectations, but we didn't perform to the external expectations and that put a bit of pressure on us. So I think I enjoy the, the notion of going into – organizations which are struggling i like the like being the person who can perhaps generate some of that hope but at the same time get together you know a really strong team to to lead it and be a part of it and you know i think that's that's an exciting part of it and what it means probably is very rarely do you get to see it through you know i've got you know my, my career is probably spent you know a lot more time losing than winning because of the circumstances by which i started and losing is the hardest part of sport as much as you get better at at reconciling both the winning and losing as you get older, it still is hard. You know when you when you're watching your team getting banged up because you're not quite ready for it, and you, you understand the the desolation that can actually create for people, and you know that's that's still a tough part of the job. Yeah, sure, I can imagine. Okay, so just another question now. I see if I keep uh, reverting back to it, starting as the CEO. But you've gone back to school as well, and yeah. at some point. So, what was the thinking when I went to school? My I didn't have a clear ambition, but probably it was to do art. I always enjoyed art. My mum's an artist, and I was I was the kid in the class who could draw a bit. You know, so I always thought that I could could do art. And then in the the time when I was at school, it was the thing that I was actually quite I thought I was quite good at with art became really quite unfashionable, you know, which was being able to draw because why do you need to be able to draw? Because we can take photographs of things. And so it became quite unfashionable during that period. And quite ironically, in a time with a lot more digital and a lot more means by which we can replicate things, drawing's actually really a big thing again. You know, it's almost seen as a, as a fundamental. So I didn't do that well in art in my last year at school. So that probably threw my whole ambition of going to study art beyond school. And my dad worked in footy. I thought I was just going to get a job in a clerical role or something like that. And then I ended up as the office boy at the Melbourne Footy Club, mainly because my, my surname was Schwab, you know, and Dad was well-known and well-respected person. And then six years later, I'm a general manager of a footy club. And then seven years or six years later, I'm an, I'm an out-of-work. You know, my time had come. And I hadn't done one accounting subject at school. I'd never done a business subject at school. I'd never done anything like that. So... I did an advanced management program at Melbourne Business School and it just opened my eyes to the fact that I could actually compete at that level with people who had gone through all of that formal education and and also then I worked out that there was a possibility given that I'd already been a, a CEO to that point that I could I could actually probably talk my way into an MBA. So I went straight into an MBA without a first first degree and I did the executive MBA at the Melbourne Business School, one where you had to live in for you know, fair parts of the year, and it was a life-changing experience. And it probably set me on a pathway of learning in both a formal and informal sense that I'd like to think that I've maintained ever since. And I was always a good reader, always read a lot. At that time, I, I realised that there was a way of directing your your thinking and your, your activities to – and all of a sudden, I got really full on into – I love strategy. Like, I'm full on into strategy. Yeah, and I think back now that even when I was trying to develop footy teams at Melbourne Footy Club, that strategy was a big part of it, setting up models and frameworks to recruit players into rather than just do a whole lot of players and hope that they'd be okay. And then probably further on, I got much more into the cultural stuff. So so then I went back and and I also did the MBA. Then I thought I'd, do an, I'd, I'd hang in there and I still didn't have a specialist area beyond being a footy administrator. And I was thinking, well, I mightn't be that because I've already had my life job and I'm 31 or 32 yeah. So I did the marketing masters as well, which I got a lot out of as well. So I did the two M- I did the two masters degrees in really short time, and then I set about getting myself back into the workforce. But it was life changing experience, and it was that which actually led and led me many years later. I did the advanced management program at Harvard Business School and did the coaching accreditation at Columbia Business School in, in New York. So all of it stemmed from an experience at the Melbourne Business School. Yeah, and so it sort of put you on a path where you've. 
haven't had that traditional university and no. then your second course and now you're obviously I'm doing my first year right now yeah because yeah. well, I've actually last year I did first year fine arts at the Victorian oh, wow. College of the Arts yeah. yeah so I went back to uni I'm like a tribal elder you know at the Victorian College of the Arts yeah so I've probably gone back to in some ways doing what I was thought I might have been doing at at 18 years of age, I'm, I'm doing in my 50s. So you're doing the drawing? That- yeah, draw. Yeah, draw. But actually, a lot of it's digital drawing. Yeah. Okay. So it's still, it's mainly portraiture and figurative work. Yeah. yeah. I do a lot with, you know, just actually do a fair bit with homeless homeless guys in, in the CBD and get to know them and talk to them and ask if I can draw them. I've got a few things up on LinkedIn. You know, at different times I put some of my drawings. So I grew up drawing superheroes and footballers and all that sort of yeah. stuff. So the figurative stuff was always probably the fascination. One of the things I always recommend in, as part of my coaching is, you know, is to find a creative space for you, for anyone. And I had that conversation recently with Kevin Sheedy, and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, I've known this guy for 40 years, but I don't don't know what his creative space is. And his eyes lit up, and he grabbed his phone, and he started showing me photos of his garden. You know, right. and he's a Kenny sort of fellow, Sheedy, and he's he probably bought acres of park orchards for about a buck fifty an acre back in the <laughs> back in the day, and and he's built this garden, and it's unbelievable, and. You know, he, he was telling me about certain times of year where certain plants grow and this will grow here. It looks a bit bare at the moment. This will bear fruit. This will come out. You know, but he was into it big time. And and he then started talking about, and I do my best thinking there. I do my best thinking there. He said, I've picked premiership teams in that garden, you know, and looking, and looking at me sideways, I've picked premiership. And he said it about three times just to make sure <laughs> that I got hold of it. And so it was actually quite, because I've been saying it all this time, you've got to find a creative space because I, I knew that worked for me. But to have someone who, to the outside world, no one would know that, and he would have had a thousand photos of his garden on wow. his on his phone. Yeah, yeah, but what a great place! Well, he's obviously can go there and have all yeah. the noise just gone and just think. And I imagine your drawings a similar process. To- it is. Yeah. The interesting thing was actually then doing art as something other than an escape, as in with an expectation associated with it. It then added a different pressure. You know, so, and I wonder whether I enjoy it as much now because I've got an expectation of myself as compared with something which was a bit of an escape. And and so, if it does become that, if it becomes the thing that I'm going to do more and more of, and I do have an expectation, well, my challenge then is okay. There's there's lots of creative spaces out there, so go and find yourself another one. You know, you're not restricted to one. And when I tell people I do speaking work, I'll, I'll explain that to people, and straight away. That's almost the thing which resonates most with them, where they go, where's mine? And they think of it mainly in terms of a creative endeavour as, as in we traditionally know creative, whether I draw or Sheed's garden or, or something similar. For some people I've worked out it's going for a walk or it's you know listening to audibles or podcasts or you know, it, there's however many different versions of it, but I still find it. And the other interesting thing I found about the art world was that they're well ahead of the business world because when I got there, the words like identity and, and notion of storytelling and purpose and and these things have been part of the art world forever. We've only just started to bring them into part of our consideration in, in the corporate or the sporting world. It's a fairly recent part of our language. Well, it's been part of the art world's language forever. Yeah. And even when you, you, you think you're going into something different, you realise that there's some things which bind us which are really quite powerful. And art's got that and it's got that in abundance and, and that's that was a beautiful thing to be a part of. Great. Fantastic. It's probably a nice segue into I just had a note here to ask you about finding something. Oh, yeah, the term finding something? Yeah, so I sort of picked that up when I was doing a bit of research. You oh, yeah. Maybe elaborate. There's a bit of a story behind it. It was I was sector CEO of Melbourne in the late 80s, the late 90s. It was basically through... The club had almost merged in 1996 with Hawthorne and it actually, Melbourne supporters, in fact, voted to merge, but Hawthorne supporters voted against the merge and, it, you know, two parties to tango type thing and so it didn't happen. And Hawthorne's response to that was a total rebuild of their footy club and Hawthorne had been a successful club not long before. They'd won the premiership only five years earlier, so it was a big fall from grace for them, whereas Melbourne hadn't won one since 1964. Melbourne was seen as the stronger partner within the merger, which was quite interesting when you think of what's actually happened. And that was one of the reasons why Hawthorne fought against it because it, the merger on, in terms of how you view it, clearly favoured Melbourne. It was basically a Melbourne jumper and, the, and Don Scott famously stood up with a Melbourne jumper with a, and pulled the hawk off the front of it and it's a Velcro hawk and all this yeah. stuff. It was a really very powerful imagery. And so Hawthorne voted against it. Well, I was appointed CEO not long after that merge. So the club was a very fragmented and dislocated club. In fact, the board was made up of pro-merger and anti-merger people who were trying to get on 
where that actually stood. It'd be like putting Labor and Liberal together. It'd be, it just was not going to happen in its own way. And I become the CEO. The next year we finish on the bottom, 1997, unsurprisingly. But the year after, we got to a preliminary final. And I think it's the biggest movement up the ladder in the history of the game. And we'd appointed Neil Danaher as coach. We'd changed a few things. But we'd also got on the end of of the last part of some great players, as in they had very good seasons at the very end of their careers, and then they dropped off the next year. So it's guys like Todd Viney, Jim Steins, Gary Lyon, David Schwartz come back from knee injuries. These were terrific Melbourne players. And we made it to a preliminary final, and we actually beat Adelaide in the finals that year who went on and won the grand final. So it was a very good year for us, but it set massive expectation. The next year, we dropped off, and we were a mid-range team, but we also had a controversy that the club had actually been paying outside of the salary cap for about the previous 10 years, and I'm the CEO. And so there was a whole lot of conjecture about as it related to blame, and it basically, again, fragmented very quickly quite a fragmented club. The president of the club is a fellow by the name of Joe Gutnick. Fair to say I didn't have a great relationship with Joe, and I ended up getting sacked as a CEO, and it was sacked in a really bad way. I basically found out about it via the media. So is this, you're watching it on TV or you're reading no, it? No, basically almost in the, it was in the papers the next day, yeah, you know, after the decision's made. And so like most sort of – I was in my mid-30s and like a lot of men, I was pretty much aligning who I was to what I did and I'd been a CEO and I saw it as my – it was my second go as a CEO and, you know, it was, a, it was just a very, very difficult period of life and, and I didn't respond to it in any – positive way it was a very yeah it was a pretty dark period and I isolated myself in lots of ways but there was one person who I would talk to and continue to talk to regularly was was Alan Jeans and Alan Jeans we only worked together for one year it was a tough year but we got close and Alan had he signed a four-year contract but due to health issues mainly anxiety which was incredible for a guy who coached you know that amount of, he coached seven or eight hundred games I think at that point but we worked really closely together to get through the year and I think laid the foundations in lots of ways. John Northey then came in as coach the next year, made the finals a couple of years later. So I think a lot of the foundations were laid during that period of time for what was not not a great era for Richmond, but certainly an improved era. And Alan kept ringing me and it was one of the only phone calls that I'd take regularly. And and he, he invited me to – he was inducting Dermot Brereton into the AFL Hall of Fame, I think it was this year. I can't remember the exact timing of it. And I went along as his guest to the function. I didn't feel comfortable at all being there. I basically hadn't worked for the previous eight or nine months. And as he was inducting Dermot into the Hall of Fame, he has this vision of, of Dermot picking himself up in the 1989 grand final. And he was clearly in a lot of pain. Been, Mark Yates had fixed him up at the start of the game in a way which was probably six or eight weeks now, but it was totally okay at the time. And Dermot was the warrior and the warrior went down. And And as this vision is being shown, Alan Jeans is, is saying, it's not how you go down, it's how you get up. It's not how you get knocked down, it's how you get up. And as he's saying it, he started looking towards me and I'm sitting and he, he was looking right at me and he was saying, it's not how you get knocked down, it's how you get up. And he's got this very powerful way of saying it. And then he's in the the voice went right up. It's not how you get knocked down. It's how you get up. And then he whispered it one more time to the point where almost people were sort of looking at, towards me because it was clear that he was he was talking to me. And I and I wrote, "It's not how you get knocked down. It's how you get up." On the back of my name tag, and it got me going again in life. You know, I started doing something about getting myself out of a place that I'd allowed myself to get into. And I started writing the word "finding something" on my notebook. And I still write it every day. I've got a notebook here, finding something. I still write down every day of my life on the top of my, my notebook with a few words which now for me define what finding something actually is. And when I give talks now, I start with the term finding something. And then as the talk evolves, I, I tell that story. And, yeah. and that's and to me, it was unbelievable piece of friendship. He was a lot older than me, but it was an amazing piece of leadership to, to actually to think that he could you know, to have the wherefore to think, well, I'll invite Cameron along to this function because I think he'll be really inspired by what I've got to say. And he was such a humble person anyway that he, he would never necessarily seen himself in that way. But it was had a profound effect on my life and probably changed my life in lots of ways. I'm not sure how it would have played out had it not been for that moment. Mm, fantastic. I'm really glad I, uh, <laughs> I asked you that question. Fantastic. Thanks for sharing. Okay, so just... God, that's almost advice for yourself. But I did have that question to ask. We have kind of covered it in many ways. But 
you know, if you had to get some advice or you had some advice along your way, what could you share with the listeners? I'm not great at advice, probably because I gave away too much of it without knowing where it perhaps was too, came from too much of what I wanted or what I needed, whether it be ego or whether it be being a CEO of a footy club and wanting what you want. So probably the interesting thing was when I did the, the coaching program at Columbia a few years ago, I, I worked out that that was probably the thing I should have done right at the start. You know that it was about how, and I, and I always felt that I, you know, that I, you know, the people who I, who I cared for cared back, and but what I actually worked out was there was not just a a want that was required to get closer to understand people, but there was actually a means by which you could actually do it, and and it's probably led in some ways to the, the business that I'm now developing, which is how CEOs as as the central figure in any organisation, you know, build and create trust and. But if you don't trust yourself at a fundamental level, you've got no means by which you can give trust. And and to fill trust as a CEO is is I think the most challenging part of the job. You know, as in feel trust as in feel trust from other people, but feel as though you are actually the person who can do what this organization needs now. And I think to do that, so I write down on on the top of my book my little finding something, but I, I write down five things every day and it's Number one is to, to do good work. If I do good work, and people say do outstanding work, do great work, do it. I think if you're consistently setting yourself to do good work, well, the chances are you're going to produce some great work from time to time. But you also know that it's going to get a bit average. You might just miss the dartboard. Yeah. But if you say just do good work, and that's just, and some say it's not ambitious enough or something, no, but for me it, it comes back to this notion that if, if someone who you work with and I said, oh, tell me what type of person they were, and so on, he's a really good person. Well, that's a really lofty standard, I think, to be known as a good person. The second point is to stay organised. I write the word "stay organised," and, and "stay organised" is, in, is in, I think, you disorganised people get CEO sacked. I think, and if you're a disorganised CEO, you get sacked. But it's also more than just your physical means by which you're organising yourself, but how you actually organise your thinking, how you allow yourself to stay organised in your thinking. Because there's so many distractions, so much information, so much knowledge, so much going on. And particularly in a CEO role, you don't want for advice. You're going to get a lot of people wanting to talk to you and they're going to come from whatever position, well-meaning or otherwise, in regard to it. So how do you stay organised in your own thinking? My third one is to be present with family and friends. And to be present, and I, I think I've always been there and available, I think most times, even in the context of the role I played. But I would question whether I've been present enough. And in a true sense, that that my mind was thinking about whatever the challenges of my job was, rather than what the challenges of my children were. And when I reflect on that, I go, "Well, how would you ever think that the priority was right?" And clearly, they're not. But there is something immediate and demanding about your work. Whereas you think you're always thinking your family is is there in long term. But you know that that by its very nature could mean you take it for granted. The fourth one is enjoy and look after myself, and that takes some doing, you know, because at different times actually just being happy in a role which is very demanding of you can be testing, and also obviously you don't look after yourself. So you've got to come up with a means by which you look after yourself. And for me, that's really only emerged in the last few years, and, and it's through I swim every morning or I ride every morning, but I try and do it with some intensity as well, not just not just falling in a pool. I, I do a falling in a pool to start off with, but yeah, you're in a, I do it in a squad. So it tests you out a little bit each time and, and that's been a, a really powerful thing for me. And I think, you know, I've, I've been lucky that I've had relatively good health all my life, but I think that will be the thing that will keep me going. And the fifth one is find a creative space. So that's the, which I've spoken about previously. So it's do good work, stay organised, be present with family and friends, enjoy and look after myself and find a creative space. And by writing them down, it, it just restarts my day each day and also, interesting because I, I do it. I do it in a moleskin or however it's pronounced uh, now. And I had a date stamp made up, you know, so each date because I don't know what notes I'm going to end up taking. So I stamp the yeah. date, and there might be twenty pages of notes. Whereas if you restrict yourself to a diary, you're restricted. You're constraining yourself. Whereas I might be in a discussion, or I'm reading a book, and I just want to write a whole lot of notes about it. And I've got good reference on those things, and I've got fifteen or twenty years of these books now. Yeah. Oh, you keep them all. Yeah, okay. yeah. There'll be good evidence of some pretty bad decisions <laughs> at different times. Got so. a whole life. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, There's something good. I look back on I wouldn't want to open, I can assure you. That, <laughs> yeah. that was a bad couple of months, that one. Yeah, so. <laughs> so you've always had this practice of keeping it, well, free-form notes. and Yeah, yeah. Even And I'm, I'm right into my technology, but I think there's something tactile about decent quality paper, nice pen, 
I used the pen that, that I actually gave to my dad for his 50th birthday. It's, it's disappeared at different times and found itself again, which has been great, you know, so I'm quite protective of it. Yeah, I think there's something tactile about it. It might be the creative side of me, but I still have all my electronic stuff and all those, but just to write down what's happening in your days. Uh, yeah, and when are you writing this? Is this sort of first thing when you get first up? First thing, for that, for that uh, when I just either arrive at work or before I leave to yeah. come to work, yeah. But so it's only it's only a ten minute exercise, yeah. yeah. And it's just a reminder of those five things. And- yeah, yeah. And it's sometimes I'll be writing down, gee, I haven't spoken to mum for a while. You know, there'll be something like that that come to mind. I wonder how Jen went with that. Yeah, my sister went with that. You know, I wonder how my brother lives in Switzerland. Gee, I haven't caught up with you. You know, that's that that type yeah. of stuff which just comes to mind when you're reading it. Writing it. Fantastic. Well, thanks for sharing. My my next question was actually going to be, what habits would you like to share? But yeah, well, they're probably built around those in in lots of ways. Yeah, I think that there's a guy by the name of David White who's a poet and he's got, he's, he writes some really interesting stuff. W H Y T E, I think, from memory. And he used the term. He said a poet would never use the word balance because it's too obvious and therefore untrustworthy. And this notion that somehow we're ever going to have our life in some it's going to find some perfect balance, I think, is is a goal and an objective that is just not achievable. And because ambitious people who, say, want to be all of the things I talked about before, they're going to find that the family thing will demand something of them which will throw the other thing. It, it always just will because life's so unpredictable. And if you've got an energy towards doing most things well, well, how are you going to actually find that? And and he actually breaks his into he calls it the three marriages. He he talks about you know the, the obvious marriage as in the one that we proclaim and we make an obvious vow to another person, which we recognise and understand as being our marriage. Although that's you know quite a controversial you know, topic, which you know I've got very strong views on in terms of that should be something which is open to everyone you know, yeah. in that sense. Then you've got you know the, the marriage to what you do, or you know as in the thing that you love to do in your life, and, and mainly for that, and that's in most people some form of work or some sort of something that they're chasing or wanting to be good at or wanting to you know. And then you know the other one is you know the marriage to self, you know as in the notion of how you develop your person, and and I don't, and I and always felt that I'd get to this stage of life that somehow I'd I'd half know everything, you know, and, and always. Just amazed at how little you know, and how how the learning thing just keeps going, and you and you find a clarity in something that you thought that you knew everything about, and and that is the same feeling. It's even probably a better feeling to find that at this stage of life than it was when I was someone was explaining something really cool. Or Ron Barassi was telling me about you know something in when I was nineteen or twenty years of age. You know that I find it even a cooler thing to experience now than I did even then because you've got so much more context. To yep. what, what it actually means and how much benefit it can actually bring. Fantastic. Okay, so we've, we've had the quote come out of the bag early, but it was just a book. If there's a book that you recommend someone. Yeah, I love the book Legacy, and Legacy is it's it's fundamentally about the All Blacks, the New Zealand All Blacks. You don't have to have a, an interest or a passion for sport to get an enormous amount from it. And the story I love from it is that is that there's a saying in the with the All Blacks which they call sweep the sheds. And it's something which and it shows you sometimes that the best purpose statements or cultural statements or actually come and grow quite organically. And this one's certainly one of those examples. And what it is is that it's a, it's an exercise in humility. And the players stay behind after the matches, the games, do all the things they have to do after the game, whether it's their warm down, media commitments, family, all the things that can happen in a game of, or a test match particularly where there's lots of expectations. But the players, everyone else leaves the change rooms and the players clean up the change rooms you know, and they do it together. And this is like, this is seriously clean it up. You know, they don't, you know, just, you know, it's not, it's, it's got to be done to a standard that they would expect, you know. And so they've created the mess on the day, so they clean up the mess. And and it's this, as I said, the whole thing about humility that, okay, you're an all black. And, and to be, I doubt whether there's any sporting team in the world plays with, as much expectation as what the New Zealand All Blacks do. Probably, you know, the Brazilian football team probably would. You know, there's probably other you know, teams which represent countries in places where they, you know, genuinely, the game is a culture. But rugby in New Zealand is just so strong and they're very powerful and they're very good. So, therefore, you could easily get caught up in your own ego when you get to play in this great side. But this is about just bringing your reality back and also recognise, and it gives them also a chance that they spend that time together which is very difficult. You'd think that footy teams and sporting teams would do that all the time. 
and I'd say it's the same as corporations. People think that you know, CEOs and their people who work for them are going to spend a lot of time together. My, my experience is they spend unbelievably small amounts of time together. And so how they maintain connection is critical, and this is one of the means by which the All Blacks actually do it. So the book's called Legacy. It's pretty freely available. You'll be able to get it you know, online or obviously yeah. at Dimmicks. And to the point where I've probably bought 80 copies of it, oh, I reckon, wow. and just give it, give it to people. Oh, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay, so you really yeah, I'm into yeah. it, and it is it is about, and I'd say that because when I talk about trust and CEOs, that if you become the CEO, we need to trust you personally, as in your integrity and your intent and your motivation, all the all the sort of the obvious things that which people think about trust as being. But we also trust you with the culture. You know, we trust you with the strategy. You know, we trust you with the systems, and we trust you with everyone else who actually works for the organisation as well, and so. One of the number one capabilities I think any organisation has to have and almost set it itself as a strategic objective is can we actually be good at trust? You know, can we, can we put it in? Everyone says, okay, what, you know, what are the critical elements of performance? Well, trust has got to sit there right at the very top. But I'm yet to see it in a strategy, let's be good at trust and then have a plan to be good at trust. These are the things we have to do. We'll allow ourselves to get distracted on a whole lot of things which are not nearly as important what we tend to do is we go straight to the organisational and the systems side of trust, as in governance frameworks and structures and all that. But if you're actually culturally not in that place, well, it doesn't matter what rules you've got, you know. And, and I've sat on those, you know, those situations where it has been up for grabs and and you never feel more compromised in your life when, when you feel as though you haven't, as a CEO, set that tone and you reflect on it and say, okay, when should I have done it, you know, and... and now the cavalry ain't coming over the hill to create it. It's it's actually up to me to do that. Yep. So I would say almost the number one capability a CEO needs to have is can they establish trust within within their organisation, yep. and that obviously then extends to to you know trusted by the board, you know trusted by the key people, and in lots of cases trusted by your market and trusted by your customers, you know such as that. Yeah, and it's probably a good segue into what what you're sort of doing now. Did you want to? Yeah, well, it's probably that. I'm, I'm going to be doing workshops with CEOs. I basically set myself, there was two reflections. Firstly, how come I'd been in organisations where I had that and then applied similar, you asked the question before, but similar sort of approaches, but probably more developed in lots of ways because you had the experience of whatever the last gig was going into that job and how come I was in situations where it didn't apply? And the interesting one was the Fremantle example I gave you before where it actually happened quite quickly where we were able to wear through some very difficult phases because we had this really strong connection and the connection was almost by accident. The connection came about by virtue of the fact that we were a travelling team. So the president who then gets appointed after the previous president went, his name's Rick Hart, who's a terrific guy and also a very personable person, we would sit next to each other for four hours on a plane you know, 10 or 15 times a year uh, to and back. So you're probably spending, like in a weekend, you could spend 8, 10, 12 hours together. Well, it just, you know, you sort of get sick of each other probably, yeah. but you actually, you develop the type of relationship which is in fact very important. And, and most of, and during the course of a year, a lot of other directors would travel, you're obviously travelling with the team, the coach would be part of it, assistant coaches. So you just got a chance, even if you weren't going any good, just to batten down the hatches at different times or to, to reflect in a meaningful way on whether that performance was acceptable or not acceptable, what was our expectation. So you just had these really good quality conversations. I then go to Melbourne, a club that I'd actually been to twice. I knew my way around. The president of the club I know well. You know, sadly, Jim Stein's got very ill, so we didn't get the opportunity of really working for a long time together without his unbelievable fight for survival in lots of ways. But for some reason, didn't actually ever achieve that level of trust. And there was a whole, there could be a whole lot of reasons that we lay blame at. But I, I get moved on in the end because of my inability to create trust. And I totally get that. If, if I was the board, I would have moved me on as well. They might say, oh, he's capable, his experience is what, but he hasn't done what is a fundamental thing, you know, within the organisation. So, again, it came down to the notion of connection and, and it might have been a distraction. There might have been a whole lot of reasons for it, but that was my fundamental responsibility. So I said, set myself to say, okay, what would the course look like that I would have done to equip me in that way, to be good at trust. So, yeah, my goal is to be good at that. My vision is to be good at that. But vision without action is just a dream in the end. So I've just basically set myself to try and do put together two-day workshops exclusively for CEOs and CEO designates on how they develop trust at a personal level 
by understanding themselves and how they're likely to lead, how they develop trust culturally and strategically, so the, I'll call them the assets of trust, and then what potentially are the enemies of trust, uh, sort of incongruent processes, incongruent systems, incongruent people, you know, they're your assets of trust, and then finish it off with what I'll call in the architecture of CEO trust, which is then a plan. And the view is that it should be something which can work with whatever they've got within their organisation now, that if they do the workshop on a, I'm looking at sort of a Friday, Saturday type scenario, that they can walk into work on Monday with a means by which that can actually happen, but do it in a way where people aren't going to be thinking, gee, this is a whole lot of change here. This is a whole new thing. This is a, It shouldn't because it's got to align with whatever the current purpose, strategy, culture of the organisation is. It's just making sure, you know, I ask CEOs the question, say, okay, if I actually asked you how do you, you want your people to feel about you? And I go, do you want to be loved? And they go, oh, no, no, don't, don't like the sound of that. You know, do you want to be, do you want to be liked? And they go, oh, yeah, no, I want to be respected. They, all, it's almost immediate. No, I want to be respected. It's almost like this thing that we've got to respond to. And I say, I reckon you want to be trusted. And I think respect is a subset of that, but you want to be trusted. And so that's personal. We trust you personally as in you're a good person, but we trust your capability to create a trusting organisation, you know. So it's a, it's a two-day workshop, you know, with a view of trying to help CEOs yes. establish and de- develop that. And I think Malcolm Gladwell sort of popularised the 10,000 hours thing, and I think I've done 82,000 hours oh, as a wow. CEO. So, <laughs> so probably, you know, I've got enough war stories to, to back up most yeah. scenarios. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Fantastic. I'll be sure to put links to the yeah, where people can sort of sign up. Yeah, so that. I'm probably a few weeks away yet, but I'll, I'll certainly make it known. And, uh, yeah, that's what I'm looking to do, yeah. Okay, well, yeah, thank you very much. I know there's many more war stories. I'm just, I didn't want to jump in. I was just enjoying listening <laughs> yeah, to the stories. Glad you liked it. And I can tell you've got another, yeah, episode left in you or maybe I hope so, a whole yeah. heap. But yeah, thanks for uh, no, no, sharing with everyone enjoyed today. It. And yeah, for everyone listening in, I hope you've enjoyed and tune in again next week for another great show. That's cool. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Cam. Thank you for listening to The Mentor List with your host, David Lewis. If you like what you're hearing on The Mentor List, the best way to support the show is to take just a few seconds to leave a rating and comment over on iTunes. You can also find further information about this show and links to further episodes at www.mentorlist.com.au. Until next time, this is The Mentor List.